Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to Private Schooling and COVID-19. How has the sector fared? Uh, my name is Neil McCluskey, and I am the director of the Center for Educational Freedom uh, at the Cato Institute. I uh, welcome you all. Um, I think uh, the moment that COVID-19 and especially COVID-19 uh, lockdowns occurred, if you cared about private schooling or school choice, or, uh, you know, just maybe your child is in a private school, maybe your first thought, Will, it was, what is going to happen to private schools? Are private schools really in a lot of trouble uh, uh, with COVID-19? And not just for the health reasons, but for financial reasons. Certainly, this is what came into my head, is that, um, you know, maybe all schools were going to be in trouble because we thought there was going to be a, a major and maybe long-lasting uh, economic downturn. And private schools, unlike public schools, don't have a guaranteed uh, flow of funding. They have to get it from people paying tuition and often other voluntary funds. Uh, sometimes it would come from a church or a parish who would would also be locked down. And so you didn't have congregations coming together, maybe taking up collections for the schools, in-person fundraising like auctions were canceled. And you may have thought, well, this does not bode well at all for private schools. And like me, you might've feared that we'd lose hundreds or thousands of these schools uh, as a result of COVID-19 and the lockdowns. But, but then as time went on, you might've started to feel a little better because you would have seen uh, stories like I saw that well, actually, especially as we started the 2020-21 school year, that private schools were opening in person as many public schools were remaining online only. And we saw articles that said, well, actually, private schools are attracting lots of new students. And you thought, well, okay, maybe this bodes well for private schooling. and Maybe they'll the sector will actually come out ahead. But then you might read those stories uh, more deeply, as I did, and continue to follow uh, the data as it trickled out about how private schools were doing. You thought, oh, well, actually, but those new students may be anecdotal, and they may not be making up for the loss of students at private schools suffered as a result of COVID-19, and so maybe they still may be in trouble. And so you may have sort of been riding an emotional roller coaster to figure out well, what is happening in private schooling. Uh, and that's certainly where I was. Um, and um, We'd like to know how private schools are doing. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about data that we at the Center for Educational Freedom, Cato Institute, collected on private schools, uh, in particular those that did end up closing with a specific connection to COVID-19. They said COVID-19 had uh, an effect on their decision to close. Um, I'll talk about that. But there still was a lot of data was hard to get. You know, most of what we collected was based on media stories about schools going out of business. Um, we did some polling to try and get a sense of how enrollment was looking, but we saw different polls from different groups. So here to help us to get a much better handle on how private schools are doing, uh, have done with COVID and maybe what the future looks like, are three people from private school associations who really know a whole lot about what happened in, in private schooling, in particular for the schools they work with. I'm just going to quickly give their names and their affiliations. You can find their bios online, but we want to get right to the substance as quickly as we can. So we have Donna Oram with us, who is the president of the National Association of Independent Schools. Um, I think if your screen's like mine, she's on the upper right. Uh, then we have Dale McDonald, who, if your screen is like mine, is on your lower right. She's the director of public policy at the National Catholic Educational Association. And then I think right beneath me on everybody's screen should be uh, Lynn Swainer, who's the Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer for the Association of Christian Schools International. 
Um, so the way we're going to work today is I'm going to give a quick overview of what we found with our private school closure tracker. Uh, we did a paper which released a few weeks ago on looking at closures and the schools, aspects of the schools within one year. And then I'm going to hand it off to all of our panelists uh, to talk a little bit about what they've seen in their sector. Uh, and then, you know, maybe five minutes or so, and then we're going to kick it off to questions and comments. Uh, maybe a few from me, uh, hopefully, though, mainly from uh, you all who are watching, because you probably have lots of questions and maybe some that I didn't uh, think of. Um, uh, just as a reminder, if you are watching us on Twitter or if you're watching us on another platform, you have Twitter or if you're on Facebook, you can send your questions or comments using hashtag CatoCEF. That's C-A-T-O-C-E-F. Uh, you may be on YouTube or something else. There should be a form there where you can fill out questions that you have. They'll eventually all make it to me so that I can uh, pick uh, lots of things that you, are on your mind to ask uh, the panelists, and maybe I'll answer a little bit of it myself. Uh, so now I'm just going to give a quick slide presentation, and I often try to avoid slides in our events because, as you all probably know, it's easy to have technical errors and problems, uh, and I always try to make things look like they run as smoothly as possible. Um, but I'm going to take a little chance. I'm going to try a slide, kind of just a few slides here, to give you just the basic information on what we have on school closures now, a little bit on the timing we saw of school closures, uh, and then uh, not a whole lot else before we move on. So here we go. Everybody, hold on, because I'm about to try and share my PowerPoint presentation. I think with a little luck. It should show up right about now, and I will even put it on. There we go. Okay, so nobody needs the, the title page, really. So here is, this is taken, says where we are. It's taken from the uh, permanent, Cato's Permanent Private School COVID-19 Closure Tracker. Uh, since we saw the first private school announced that it was going to close, uh, in part because of, at least in part because COVID-19 made the financial situation look impossible to deal with. Since the first one we started, uh, that was March 18, 2020, this tracker actually goes through right now. Uh, we do have a paper, as I mentioned, uh, that is up on our website. It is private schooling after a year of COVID-19, how the private sector has fared and how to keep it healthy. That gives just a one-year snapshot. So you can see what happens from March 18, 2020 to March 17, 2021. But if you look at this slide, so we continue to update this tracker, and you can see we've had 140 closures. Uh, that we know of. So the important thing to understand is this tracker is only of things we found in media reports, which means there may be schools that have closed that either the media didn't report on or that the media reported on and we didn't find. So this is sort of a baseline level. Um, but what we found of these schools were they were heavily Roman Catholic schools, um, also uh, though of some different types. Total enrollment was about 22,000. Um, and the tuition was actually quite low, about $7,030, which I'm going to talk about a little more in a moment. Uh, we, you may see net closures there. Some schools consolidated. So, you know, they might have gone away. You would have had two schools and now you have one. So we counted closures as both schools. But then after consolidation, you have fewer closures. Um, and then also of interest are the closing school demographics. As you'll see in our paper, if you read our paper, the 
private schools that close look very similar to public schools in their demographics. So about half uh, white, um, about 15% African-American, 23% Hispanic, around 5% Asian, looks a lot like um, public schools. Um, and so this is the basics of where we are now. What we also found was there was a heavy concentration of closers in the Northeast. There's more to it. You can certainly read the paper and find out. Uh, I thought it would be interesting, though, just to give a sense of these private schools that have closed and where the spending is relative to what we spend on education. And again, this shows that we're talking about very low-cost, affordable schools that went out of business. You can see the COVID-19 closures, those schools that identified COVID-19 and its impacts as part of the reason they, they decided they had to close. The tuition was $7,066. This is now just in the first year of closure, so there have been some since. Uh, private schools' average tuition overall is about $11,173. And it's important to put this in the context of what we spend on public schools, which is about $15,000 per student. So we're not talking about you know, super expensive uh, elite schools. We're talking about schools that are very affordable that have typically been the ones that have gone out of business. Um, uh, I should also say we have tried to track enrollment costs. This is one of the things we can talk about more uh, because the best we've got is sort of an estimate. I estimate based on some of our own very limited uh, survey work and other groups, maybe an enrollment loss of 5% Cross private schooling, that is a big estimate. Uh, and one thing that I want to, I think we'll talk about is, you know, why wasn't this a bigger closure, big as, uh, as maybe I feared it would be? There are a number of reasons, but the first maybe, and we can talk more about this, is the PPP program, uh, which was the uh, Paycheck Protection Program that uh, the federal government started with the CARES Act early in COVID-19 and then uh, continued on. It appears that private schools were able to get, and churches they may be affiliated with, may have been able to get a lot of money to help them through the really tough times when the lockdowns had uh, powerful economic effects. Uh, and also has did the closure of public schools, especially as we entered the 2020-21 school year, that so many public schools remained uh, online only and private schools in person, how much of an impact did that have? I also just want to show you quickly the timeline. So we have what happened under COVID. We had what happened under the lockdowns for COVID. Then my concern was, well, what happens going forward? Because we may still be following the effects. What you could see by, from our closures by month is that certainly in the beginning of COVID, there were a lot of closures. April, May, June, and July was where we saw the biggest numbers. Um, what I wasn't sure was, well, is that typical? Because that would also be when schools are making decisions. Or was it uh, exacerbated, at least by COVID? As we kind of re-enter those months again now in the new year, I expected to see a bigger uptick in closure announcements than we have tracked so far, six in April. Uh, and so it may be that we saw this big COVID effect and we will not see something similar going into the next month. And now with that, I'm going to try and stop sharing. Let's see if I successfully can stop sharing. All right. And now I need to, uh-oh. Okay. Oh, there we go. All right. You may be seeing, can everybody see me again? I hope. Okay. So 
that is all. Those are all the slides I wanted to show. I think I managed to avert any major disasters. And so with that, uh, um, I will hand it over, I think, to Donna. Would you like to go next to talk about how your school is? Sure. And I will uh, attempt to share as well um, to tell our story. So if you bear with me. Okay. Um, well, thanks for those opening slides. You know, I will start out with it's been a very challenging year, but um, actually very few of our schools closed. Um, we are a little more worried about the future, but I'm going to try to tell the story uh, very quickly about the year. So I think the first thing to understand is uh, COVID was really tough for schools, but there were a lot of headwinds before that. And these are just some of the bigger ones that were affecting our schools. Um, you know, I'll certainly uh, want to emphasize things like changing demographics. Uh, we were seeing a birth rate decline before COVID and like other um, economic uh, disasters, um, COVID has actually further pushed that down. But polarization is really increased, I think, with isolation. Systemic racism is something that we've been dealing with for a while, as well as the changing workforce. Um, I'm a little nervous about that moving forward. But you know, for us, when we look at COVID, um, there are a lot of financial pressures, but uh, the well-being of our community um, has been really disrupted. So, you know, we are very concerned as well about mental health issues moving forward. But, you know, to start in March when uh, all the schools started closing down, I would say what was front and center for all of our schools uh, was uh, how do you keep the community together and how do we support students in every way needed? So. You know, if you can see this slide, um, I think you can understand that front and center in supporting students was trying to get back to face-to-face -to -face school. And you can see the progression. Um, I know this is a little hard to consume, but, um, but you know, generally by March or April, the majority of our schools were open face-to-face -face or had a hybrid component. So this was um, not easy to do very expensive to do, very hard on the community to do, but I think schools stepped back and said, you know, we just have to make sure that students get what they need during this time because it's very hard on them. You know, and that support in the beginning started with most of our schools went online overnight and most were not really prepared for that. But they also knew that being online was really going to affect some students very negatively. So um, they started to make investments from you know, uh, advising relationships were increased, uh, teacher check-ins. Check um, schools put a lot of money into um, ensuring that they had uh, counseling services and other kinds of mindfulness activities. And then they stepped back and said, what are these stress producers and can we bring these stress down? So um, that meant uh, making changes to attendance and grading. Um, so just that aspect of really focusing on students um, has been front and center since the beginning of the pandemic. But also, you know, when I talk about supporting the community, the other piece which was financially difficult was supporting families. Every family had a different situation. Some lost jobs, 
some lost businesses, some had to support other family members. So, you know, schools dived in right away, even though it was a tough time in the stock market early on to try to aggressively fundraise. Um, as you can see, a lot of schools uh, developed these emergency grant funds that families could draw from. Many increased their financial aid budgets, but you know these two jobs stayed front and center. How do we keep our students safe and how do we keep our communities together? You know, and, and parents by and large um, gave thumbs up for this, um, you know, for the going online right away. And, and God knows everything was not perfect. I think what we were doing was more distance learning than online learning, and that's really improved over time. But, you know, parents felt that schools were really doing everything possible to serve their students and to make sure that their families were taken care of during this time. You know, at the same time in pushing to open, um, faculty and staff were exhausted and scared. So, you know, I think the leaders in our school who have just been working tirelessly, you know, also spent a lot of time um, trying to keep the faculty community together. So, you know, they did everything from bonuses to spending an enormous amount of time on gratitude, um, you know, and giving them whatever kind of safety supports that they needed. But um, teacher attrition was still there during COVID and, and this um, was tough. Um, you know, some schools experienced teacher shortages. Um, we had many early retirements. We saw people switching professions. So, you know, this is something else that was really tough to manage, you know, while we're trying to give all these additional supports, there was all this churn in the workforce as well. You know, and, and um, back to the opening slides, uh, you know, it was tough financially. Um, bottom line is schools had to make huge investments and it was a tremendous hit on the bottom line. So for many schools, there was, um, you know, a loss of revenue. Um, many of them went into deficits and uh, you know are trying other ways to um, to really get out of that. Um, many really uh, aggressively put the uh, pedal to the metal on fundraising to try to bring in those funds. Um, and also PPP loans were taken by some schools, not all of them, and particularly for, I think, pre-K and um, elementary schools, this was really tough because they were really uh, hit very hard early on. So the PPP loans were very helpful in keeping their faculty and staff together during this time. You know, but um, as I said, it's been a really tough year um, and enrollments have been up and down. And, um, you know, we think next year is going to be a hard year. As you can see, it's a mixed bag. And enrollment, um, which we look at every two to three months, has just been up and down and up and down. But, you know, many of our schools who were struggling before the pandemic actually ended up doing better and having waiting lists because they did open. And it was certainly attracting um, many parents. So that is uh, just a very top line view of uh, what was going on um, at our schools uh, during this time. So there's a lot more to really get into, but I think that tells the story of the year that we've had. 
Great. You're starting to confirm uh, what I thought, which is, has been kind of a roller coaster year. So, um, uh, Dale, you're up. Thank you. Our story uh, has a lot of same parallels as, as we heard from the independent school world. But, you know, thanks to the incredible sacrifice and dedication of our Catholic school community, our teachers, our principals, our superintendents, Catholic schools seem to be managing this pandemic crisis with fairly good measure of success um, at, at great cost financially and as well as physical toll on people. Um, schools have been open for in-person learning in compliance with state and uh, local health and safety measures. Not all schools were able to open under local mandates. But at the start of the school year, 92% of Catholic schools were open for full-time in-person instruction, along with hybrid for families that wanted that option, or if the school was not able to have enough space to um, comply with social distancing and so had to bring the kids in a couple of days a week, uh, alternating days when students would attend. Um, but at the start of the school year, we did have, you know, what made a lot of the papers, you know, 209 schools did actually close. Some of them escaped Neil's study, but uh, directly reported to NCEA on our annual collection, 209 schools did close. And there was a 6.4% decline in enrollment. That was a little more than 111,000 students fewer um, than there were the school year before. And most of that was at the elementary school level, about 8.1%. But uh, the biggest loss was with the preschool, as we've seen in, in public sector as well. But there was a 26.6% decrease in our um, pre-K enrollment, which is really quite um, a hit. But um, despite that kind of loss, the enrollment of uh, the uh, staffing um, percentages did not decrease that dramatically. Um, in fact, it was only a 2.3% decrease in staffing, a, a professional staff, the teachers, principals, guidance councils, et cetera. And a, a lot of that is attributable to the uh, payroll protection program. Most of our schools um, did participate in that program uh, and were able to keep staffing. The present issues that the schools are dealing with first and foremost would be the social emotional issues that um, will likely be with us for the foreseeable future. Uh, as you know, students and teachers are trying to process their experience, their losses, their um, the realities that they've seen in families and in their communities. And that has an impact on, on school culture, stressful in many instances, as schools are trying to adapt to this new reality and provide emotional supports, um, looking um, to assist um, the whole school experience for students. So enrollment continues to be an issue as schools look toward the registration process for next year. And we're seeing in media reports, school closures being announced. Schools do not report directly to NCEA. They report to their diocesan schools office. But we are hearing, um, you know, LA has already announced the closure of six schools. We're hearing consolidations in Pittsburgh and New York and different places uh, around the country, anecdotally from newspaper accounts. 
So that will, you know, can continue to be a concern. Will, you know, families have the financial resources to re-enroll? And a particular concern, of course, is what the pre-K enrollment will look like. Um, as, uh, you know, the earlier grades, the pre-K, the K are the pipeline for uh, enrollment in upper grades. So we're watching that closely. Um, and then, you know, we've seen media reports of, you know, we're getting all these kids enrolling from public schools that aren't open. And while it's true that we did um, pick up a number, um, a little over 1,400, we've um, polled 1,400 families who did make the switch because they wanted full-time instruction. Um, and many of them have said that they will continue. We did a survey and proportion, uh, the majority of those said that they would return. But the, um, the loss of the students who were there um, who can't afford to come back is really troubling for us and, and, and for and because most of those were in your inner city areas. Uh, Neil referred to that earlier. That demographic looks pretty much like a public school demographic. And a big part of our, our mission as church is to provide for the vulnerable. And uh, we're looking at ways to do that uh, when finances are an issue. And the uh, available income from parish collections, from diocesan support um, has been um, greatly diminished. And what was there has been to a large extent expended on trying to reopen. The uh, finances of course are continued to be an issue. Um, just maintaining the safe environment, the supplies that needed, the cleaning, uh, the special attention to ventilation and all of that um, have required additional resources that um, while the federal programs have um, provided for them, the um, problems getting the financial resources sorted out at the state and district levels with which we have to, through which we have to participate, have really held up um, the, the actual flow of um, uh, funding to take care of those services. Um, the CARES Act and the subsequent um, additions of that and the um, American Recovery Program um, have provided for participation of private school students. We had expected equitable participation. Uh, we had expected the programs to be treated as a, a disaster recovery, the way we've seen in other programs going back to Katrina and all the other hurricane and wildfire assistance that was provided on an equitable basis. But through various political machinations, um, private schools are treated differently. That um, income status was was is now uh, applied to participation of private school students and families, while it is not to public school. All public school schools are benefiting for and students are benefiting from these COVID relief packages. So. That's a problem uh, that we've had to overcome and have had delays in trying to get those services. Um, because of the nature of financial assistance to private schools, schools never get the direct funding. Schools work through their district or for the last two packages through their state to have to apply for services and to have the state or local district provide those services uh, with the funding that was uh, allocated so that we're still trying to um, 
make up for some of the inabilities we had to provide, particularly the technology pieces for students whose families don't have the wherewithal to have the broadband connectivity and do multiple devices. You know, with two or three students at home on one computer, um, the learning uh, curve has increase exponentially for students in our schools. And so while we've been able to provide some, we have not been able to provide adequately for all students with the technology. And then um, tuition um, finance, the finance aspect of tuition is um, still a key factor in whether or not families can return. And, you know, we have these cyclical issues with tuition. Students drop out then tuition has to be raised to be able to continue to pay for what needs to be paid for and provide just wages. And then raising tuition causes, you know, more families to have to be able to drop out. So we're looking at um, the fact that for um, elementary, for Catholic elementary schools, the national average, 65% of funding for um, secondary schools comes from tuition and 83% of the actual costs are paid for at elementary school level by tuition. And so compensating for the loss of the tuition uh, has always been fundraising events. And those were significantly curtailed, if not um, eliminated during the pandemic. Most unfortunately, most schools do their big annual gala fundraisers in the spring. And that was when COVID hit last year. And many of them are still not able to do because of social distancing restrictions, what they will would be doing this spring as well. So to sum it up, I mean, the effect of the, the effectively, um, the issues they're dealing with, you know, when we surveyed people was effective stakeholder communication, being in, co in contact with families, giving them the information and getting the information um, that schools need to continue to be able to provide effective instruction. Then maintaining the physical and, and cleansing, maintaining the physical space, that still is a problem. The uncertain financial um, issues, you know, particularly for, as we mentioned earlier, those parishes and uh, where mass attendance has not returned. And so the weekly collections have taken a big hit. Then procuring technology and connectivity for all students. And some of that is, you know, back orders and the raise in prices for things that have become scarce. Um, the uh, professional development of, of teachers to be able to adapt to this new reality and to teach effectively um, hybrid models as well as complete virtual learning. But um, we've seen some positives that um, some schools have been able to find new revenue streams to make new partnerships uh, possible within their community um, to um, be able to learn to adapt to new technologies and make that part of the effective learning environment um, and to overcome some of the initial reluctance of teachers. There was at the start um, some resistance on the part of very few, but an, a noticeable number uh, that felt they just couldn't adapt to this. And, um, you know, we've heard as in the independent schools, you know, some um, staffing issues. But um, going forward, I think, you know, we have um, 
put in a lot of temporary measures to adjust to enrollment and finance and marketing and professional development. And so um, hopefully, you know, this time of crisis has been an opportunity to learn new things and to innovate in ways that may um, provide a new chapter of, you know, vitality and vibrancy for Catholic schools and enable us to carry on our mission. So I'll leave it at that. And um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to tell a little bit about the Catholic school story. Great, Lynn? Well, hi everyone. While I'm getting ready to share my screen, I want to apologize. Apparently we're having a little bit of technical difficulty in the wilds of the Western suburbs of Philadelphia. And therefore my screen is uh, glitching a little bit. So I apologize if you see that. Uh, is everyone, can everyone see my screen? Okay. Um, so just a quick, uh, first of all, a lot resonated with what my colleagues have already shared, so I won't belabor a lot of the same points, but a little bit about the Association of Christian Schools International. We serve 2,300 schools in the U.S. for a little bit over half a million students. We are a global organization, but that is our profile in the U.S. We did three major surveys of our U.S. membership and also of our international, but I'll, I'll report out on the U.S., obviously in May, July, and December of 2020. So really quickly, the pivot to distance learning when we surveyed schools in March 2020, 98% of schools reported that their campuses were physically closed. But we asked them how quickly they pivoted to distance learning, and very similar to what Donna uh, shared, it was, a, it was a very quick pivot. So I'll just draw your attention to the orange circle. Uh, you can see that a third of our schools on average missed no instructional days, uh, about two-thirds missed less than three instructional days, and about 80% missed less than five instructional days. And this was really a Herculean effort on the part of our schools to move their instruction online uh, as quickly as they could. And of course, uh, we also we also have other data. They said that with great, they did it with great fidelity. So they actually continued to offer both core elective and in some cases art and physical education, if you can imagine. So uh, a Herculean effort certainly did create a lot of stress for our schools, but uh, because of their commitment to their mission, uh, and their desire to serve their communities. Uh, this was what we were able to see with our schools. Fast forwarding to as of December 2020, so this was just a few months ago, asking what the status was. We see uh, a, a quarter of our schools were fully in-person only, uh, a little bit over half were in-person with a distance option for folks maybe uh, students didn't feel comfortable, et cetera. Uh, about 7% required some form of blended learning, about 8% said other, but there was some kind of on-site learning for that, and about 4% were distance only. So we have 96% of our schools are doing in-person instruction. I don't have a slide for you here, but at, uh, with a high degree of care, caution, fidelity to local and state health departments, and also all kinds of cleaning protocols, distancing, everything you can imagine has been put in place to do this safely. And the disruption data that we have in terms of COVID actually shows that there are not significant disruptions of instruction and risk and safety so far, uh, as you've probably seen on the national media for, for private schools that open. We were you know, a lot of people were predicting sort of Armageddon in terms of COVID infections, and that, in fact, was not the case. Uh, looking quickly at enrollment impact, this is uh, academic, this academic year as opposed to last. We have about half of our schools showed a decline in enrollment, 
about a third an increase, and then about 15% steady. Most frequently, schools reported a range of decline between 5 to 10%. So certainly not, uh, not positive, but also not uh, extreme. And those who reported a gain, it most frequently was between 5 and 10%. Over a third of our schools reported enrollment growth since the start of school. So that was picking up students who has been shared by my colleagues who, whose families uh, were not were dissatisfied with other options or their regular option for school and, and chose to enroll their students uh, predominantly for that in-person instruction. Uh, CARES Act participation, the payroll protection loans were key for our schools. Uh, over 80% participated, about 14% uh, did not. I would like to echo what was said about the Catholic schools in terms of equitable services. This was very much a mixed story. Uh, we had close to half of our schools participating. Uh, we're very grateful for those uh, local agencies and school districts that were good partners in getting this distributed, but it was a very, very mixed story in terms of our schools being able to access those funds for their students uh, and a lot of um, a lot of intervention that we had to do in some cases as an association, even legally to assist with that. Emergency financial aid, similar to what NAS found, uh, over two thirds of our schools offered emergency financial aid for families uh, in need. And this was, again, you know, people had lost their jobs, et cetera. So uh, family businesses taking hits. So really that community care, which will come up in a bit. I do want to share some closure data. We found some similar things too. I think, Neil, what you found, but uh, but a little bit of gradation. I want to share before I, I put this on the screen, these are closures for any reason. We did not disaggregate this data based on whether it was COVID related or not. So this really could be for any reason, but like Donna had shared, I think that COVID accelerated for a lot of schools uh, issues they were already having. So we had about 75 schools that closed. That's about 3% of our membership. 10 were in early education and uh, 65 had grades somewhere in K to 12. This is the distribution here. You'll notice that the lion's share, 80%, had an enrollment range of zero to 99 students. And this is significant because these schools tend to charge lower tuition. They tend to be less financially solvent or more at risk. And what we see is that in 2020, one out of 10 schools in this size range closed. And again, um, the numbers are not, are not huge, but these are huge for their communities. These are, again, smaller schools that are serving uh, populations that are in need um, of, of private school and Christian education. So um, certainly not as the high numbers as Neil had said that we could have expected, but, uh, but any school that closes is of course a, a tragedy for the families in that community. The last thing is just distribution of school closures. We did find something a little bit different from the uh, Cato Institute findings. We actually had the largest numbers were, yes, in the Northeast. You can see the region shaded here. Uh, but really, our largest was in California, which is really interesting because uh, percentage-wise of closures, because, of course, we all know California uh, even uh, until recently, we had schools that were not permitted to open physically. So uh, th this is that really, I think, caused an extra hit to our schools that were in that state. Uh, 
I just want to end with what Donna also had highlighted, kind of those intangibles. One of the things that we saw over and over again was the value of community. And we have lots of data on this, but just to put some things up real quickly, these are just some of the great qualitative data we got. Really the care and concern that our teachers, our faculty, our, our, our staff, our leaders had for their community to continue to engage families, engage students, whether they were on campus or not. And that really has been a hallmark, I think, and a value add, or really rather articulating the value proposition for our schools is to be able to continue that community engagement throughout this pandemic. Um, looking forward to next year, you know, certainly anticipating that we will continue to have uh, challenges, but our schools have, have risen to the challenges thus far and are serving their communities really well. Well, thank you all. Um, so we've got a lot of questions and comments coming in. Uh, I'm going to get to those in just a minute. I just wanted to, I'm not sure that people have the context for overall uh, private schooling. Uh, there are about 32,500 private schools in the country. About 14,000 of those have 50 or fewer students. Uh, my biggest worry with our tracker is there may be a lot of those schools that have gone out of business we just don't know about because they are too small to put out sort of a press release, uh, and if they do, to get media to report it. So that's, I think, one of the reasons that certainly we have lower numbers than than groups who are in contact with these schools. Uh, I'd also say that we, we've we also tracked, I think, 29 non-COVID closures in the year, is 27 uh, in the year, uh, the first year of closures. So there are numbers in addition to those that had a specific COVID connection. Um, I should also note that we have links to the uh, surveys that uh, Lynn showed, and also you can go to the NCAA website, I should have held this up, and you can get their uh, annual sort of compendium on school numbers and enrollment and things like that. You go to their website, you can get that. Um, and then we have a couple of questions. Uh, there's one from Vernon, uh, and then we have one from Henry, uh, and they both ask about homeschooling. And I thought that this was an interesting question um, because we've seen a lot of data, uh, including, I think it was from the Census Bureau that suggested, well, homeschooling may have gone from basically 3% of uh, school-age kids a couple of years ago or three years ago to about five or so percent, uh, I think a year or so ago, up to maybe 11% of students now. Um, I think that the 11% may be a little high because the definition of homeschooling, at least as I read it, doesn't make it totally clear whether you are receiving your education from a school, but at home online, or whether it's true homeschooling and that you, you as a family are running the schooling, you're controlling the schooling. But I'd be curious to know if any of you have a numbers or a sense for how many students you may have lost to actual homeschooling as opposed to students who are receiving instruction from schools at home. You know, we'll go, I, uh, I, ahead, I'm happy to, to, to take that. Um, you know, I don't think we lost many. In fact, um, although Ed Choice did a really interesting study to show that a lot of parents were testing out different models during this time. So, you know, some of them tried homeschooling. Many of them were interested in pods. But our experience was that um, most families were, particularly if they were trying to work themselves, were looking for more structured 
standard setting. So um, even though, you know, there may be some, um, a just a very minute number, at least in our membership, that's going to continue to do so. Um, you know, I, and those numbers are really hard to actually get. I know the Department of Education has tried to track numbers on homeschooling and um, because people are often putting together various different programs, um, it can be hard to understand who is actually just homeschooling. You know, I think what we have found is the opposite, that some homeschooling families are now looking for a little more structure in our schools. And many of our schools at looking at models in the future are wondering if there are opportunities for them um, to give parents um, a little bit of both worlds. So, you know, the kind of structure that they may want for certain subjects or certain activities, plus, um, you know, whatever goals they had that drove homeschooling to begin with. Mm -hmm. uh, just so we don't get in an answering rut where we're always going in the same order, I'll ask Linda to answer Nath and then, then Dale. I'll yeah, try to keep changing it. I would echo much of what uh, much of what Donna said. I think that uh, many of our schools have have tried intentionally well before COVID to establish positive relationships with homeschooling families and to offer some of those hybrid programs or courses or whatever the case may be. Uh, you know, my sense and again, we don't have hard numbers and Donna explained why those are hard to get. Uh, is is that the gain that we're seeing from schools, from students and families that are leaving other types of educational options to come are, are far, is far outpacing those that may be opting for a full on homeschooling experience. And again, because we've we've generally our schools have generally tried to have that positive relationship with homeschooling families and to provide, you know, a la carte or different parts of their program. I would anticipate that that will increase in the future and will become even a better partner to existing homeschooling families. Great, Dale. We haven't we haven't tracked that. It's difficult to know where uh, people have gone once they left um, and and haven't re-enrolled. I know um, reading different things in education uh, publications, you know there is this big gap of uh, people missing uh, both public school and and possibly you know since generally they don't track our schools that closely and possibly some from our schools, but we haven't really heard that families were switching to homeschooling um, directly, even those who are doing, you know, the virtual um, or complete, you know, virtual want to be connected into um, a more formal structure. So um, I think it will be interesting to see what next year's school enrollment looks like and be able to possibly track better where um, those who are not re-enrolling uh, are. But um, my um, slightly uneducated guess would be many of them have gone to um, public school rather than homeschool. Uh, thank you. Um, so we have a question from, I don't have a name, it's just anonymous, but uh, it's a pretty important question. Wanted to know how have closures, school closures this year 
compared to previous years. And it's hard to actually find that nationally because at least all I was able to find uh, was I think it's every other year and you kind of get net gainer loss. You don't know how many have gone down due to, to COVID. We don't have you know so good previous years for at least me to look at nationally. How have you all, um, how do you close your numbers this year compared to previous years? And uh, why don't we now, we'll start with, we'll go Lynn and then Dale and then Donna. Yeah, again, it's as you just said, Neil. It's hard to 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 look at that data, especially because we have we have you know closures for any reason. Uh, so you know, but my sense is looking at the data that we are certainly not seeing a, a tidal wave of any kind. Uh, you know, I think that they're they're fairly on par. When we look at ACSI membership, we're we're tracking. So in other words, if we were to look at the changes in membership year over year, we are about where we would expect ourselves to be this year. And had there been a deluge of schools that had closed or been financially challenged uh, above and beyond what we normally experience year over year, certainly that number would have changed. Great. Dale? Well, we've been tracking school closures over the last couple of decades, and um, we have seen a steady um, high, high 1.89, 2.2 um, enrollment decline, as well as school closure um, decline. Um, actually, and that's primarily in the large urban districts where um, we've had um, very changing demographics um, and school and parish closures um, were were number uh, were number high number. So um, and actually in the last decade we've closed almost 16% of schools. So um, but this year like more than doubled what would be the annual uh, closure rate for the last decade or two. So um, it's, you know, Catholic schools have declined significantly over the years. Um, and biggest driving force for that has been the tuition uh, increases and families' inability to or unwillingness to pay that. Donna? All right. Um, you know, we have seen very few schools close over the last few decades. What I would say, however, is that um, starting with the Great Recession, um, a number of schools started to feel softness in the market. And that was particularly in early childhood education, elementary schools, uh, middle schools. And um, we found that families who used to really try to lock in independent school education as early as possible were now making choices. And uh, many of them were making choices for high school and really saving their money for that. So, you know, so we had seen um, a lot of schools really hanging on since the Great Recession. Um, you know, and I think the pandemic was uh, another big hit for many schools, but it didn't end up being as 
big of a hit as they thought it would be. And so it's just a, a real mixed bag. But um, I think what we are concerned about is that there are aspects of this that may have a very long tail. And so if some of the families who have switched um, do not decide to stand schools, or if they have saved enough money to maybe pay for one or two years of education, um, we're concerned that um, unless we really look at our business model and our prices moving forward, um, you know, we may struggle even a little bit more in the years ahead, particularly, I think, the lower schools who have, you know, struggled after the Great Recession through the pandemic and um, but ironically, I think, you know, as we look at what kids need, um, they may be just about the most important investment that a parent can make early on because of those social emotional skills that are going to be so important in a changing world. All right. I'm going to ask a quick one on my own. I hope it's quick. Maybe I'll ask if you just give a one minute answer, because I want to get back to the questions and comments from the audience. But this is all made me think about we're talking about CARES Act and things like that. Um, there's sort of two things that I see going on. One, as I've analyzed the uh, federal funding in all sorts of programs, CARES, CRRSA, uh, ARPA, and upcoming. A lot of that money seems, or disproportionately, and I think Dale talked about this, disproportionately it seems geared toward public schools. So on one side, are you concerned uh, that it'll be really hard to keep up with all the, you know, competing with public schools with what looks like they're gonna get a whole lot of resources you may not have access to. On the flip side, we've seen this, it, sort of profusion of school choice programs, new programs or expansion of the states. How do you see that all working out for your schools? You think it kinds of, uh, they cancel out or will the headwinds become even greater because we may be looking at a lot of federal money that could be, uh, possibly dwarf the school choice we're looking at? And maybe if you just want to raise your hand and answer, I won't even require everybody to answer. I can't require it really, I'm not the boss here, but I will right, we'll start with Lynn. <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, certainly uh, we, we have a, a legal legislative department that's engaged in uh, advocacy on behalf of, of Christian education partners with uh, a number of different organizations for to advocate on behalf of private schools, uh, faith based or not. And certainly that is a concern. And that is something that we're working uh, very hard to to try and ensure that the private school voice and the faith based sector, uh, in addition, is is at the table for those federal funds. So that is a concern. I think we are um, definitely encouraged by the, the it seems like the burgeoning movement towards school choice uh, legislation in a number of states. So that is encouraging uh, for us and certainly continue to work at the state level with our schools and our networks to, to support that. One thing that I would mention, Neil, um, that we haven't talked about is that our schools, while we are trying to be at the table uh, on behalf of our schools, for federal and, and state money, they are also, we're also getting all kinds of data that our schools are themselves working hard to become sustainable. So we've seen an uptick in the number of mergers, for example, an uptick in the number of schools looking at third source incomes, and also looking to uh, perhaps 
um, move the programs and things that they developed during this time of COVID to actually move them into a, another a revenue stream or a way of serving families. So I think that the federal and the state funding is key. We'll continue to show up for that. But in addition to that, our schools are reporting that they are really working to be innovative, to be sustainable for the future. All right, Don or Dale, do you want Dale? Yeah, go ahead. Um, it is a concern for us on, on a number of levels. First and foremost, I mean, this is a justice issue. These funds that are being distributed through the various federal aid programs are taxpayer money and all of our kids' parents are taxpayers and they deserve a fair share of the funding resources. You know, there's this myth out there that all our schools are very wealthy. You know, we have high um, endowments, we have lots of expendable income. And that's really not true for almost all of our schools, that the, um, the expendable income in schools is very small. Um, that we try to keep the tuition as low as possible to make it affordable and accessible for families. And so we don't have all this backup money that can, um, you know, help us to compete with public schools. We don't like to um, say we're competing with public schools. We are another alternative in a variety of options that families can choose. But we think making an artificial um, playing field um, bar barriers have created a different playing field are not fair to any family. And so, you know, we are um, continuing uh, working with the other two groups that are here, the Christian Schools International and the um, independent schools, you know, working in concert with um, congressional uh, leadership and the Department of Ed to to get our kids to be considered fairly. Um, but on, and the other thing that I think is important, you know, that the mission of the school is what attracts families and families will make great sacrifices to um, attend at the school because they believe in the mission of the school, the community of the school, and they're not necessarily looking for the shiniest toys and, you know, the most advanced technology um, that they want what we have to offer. And what we're asking for is a level playing field on which to be able to offer what we have. So, um, yeah, it's problematic, but um, I think we're able to um, keep our priorities straight. Mm -hmm. And we're not willing to sacrifice who we are for, you know, additional resources if it comes to that. All right, Donna, do you wanna say something on this? Sure, I don't have much to add. I think my colleagues have expressed uh, it well. The only thing I, I would wanna say is moving forward as a society, I hope we step back and say, what do we have to do to invest in all children, um, to really optimize the talent so that every child has an opportunity to succeed. And, you know, I, I hope we can switch some of the dialogue from a public versus private to really how do we have a school system that uh, really serves every child? Um, because it's really opportunity more than anything else um, that ensures that a society thrives. Great, all right, I, we have time, I think, for one more question, although I'm gonna throw two in if you wanna address them both, that's, <laughs> that's fine. It's kind of sneaky and it's dirty, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Um, but Mark asks, why were teachers willing to return to the classroom 
at your schools, uh, when those who work in public or charter schools were unwilling to do so. I don't know that we can speak for people in other schools, but maybe you could say real fast why you think you were able to get your teachers to return. And then we had somebody, uh, they don't have a name, but they wanted to know uh, in particular whether uh, the Catholic and Christian schools COVID caused you in any way to sort of change the emphasis on your religious mission, but same would apply to independent schools. Did COVID cause you to change anything about your mission, maybe to bring in new students or or to uh, help new students uh, who would come because of COVID feel more comfortable? Uh, and I will go, now we'll go back in our original order, we'll go to Donna and then Dale and then Lynn, and then we'll, we'll have to draw it to a close. Um, you know, I think, I don't know that anything changed us to change our mission. I mean, I think if anything, um, COVID has really focused our schools to go back to their why, um, to say what, um, you know, really matters more than anything else. And uh, so I think that there is a lot of that. As to the teachers, I would say that um, why they went back to school is that our schools prioritize safety over everything else and, uh, and really worked with the teachers. So, you know, for the most part, these weren't hierarchical decisions. They were community decisions to put the students' needs first and to um, ensure that the school made deep investments into safety and to continually test that safety. And so, you know, we have not had many outbreaks at our school, but I think, you know, the combination of the community working together and these deep and, um, and uh, across the board investments in safety have uh, brought the teachers back. Great, Dale. Yes, I, you know, I, I very similar sentiments. Our mission has not been compromised. I think because of the communal nature of our schools, the faith community and, and the community of um, believers together and um, welcoming uh, hospitality of our schools, um, the kids come first. And so uh, while, you know, schools and dioceses invested millions, millions of dollars in safe environments, the teachers were also concerned about their students. And um, knowing that the environment was safe, um, they, they wanted to come back as well. Um, that children needed them as well as their, you know, family and their home environment. And so, um, uh, we did not have great resistance um, for teachers coming back. Thank All you, right. teachers. Thank you, teachers. All right. Bring us home, Lynn. Yeah, very similar. You know, I think the, the safety investments, being able to work with teachers who were reluctant, being able to offer hybrid options, really be the flexibility, I think, of being in the private school uh, sector um, really worked well for our schools and enabled, you know, all teachers love their students, uh, regardless of sector. All teachers want to be with their students, regardless of sector. I think there are just some real structural differences um, that enable uh, private schools and our schools, our Christian schools, to be able to move very nimbly to be able to do that. And I would just echo what my colleague said, you know, uh, this is an active conversation. We've collected data on this. And what we found is that the missions of our schools are not changing. Uh, what is changing is how it looks like we accomplished that mission, uh, both in the COVID context, in the more hybrid context, in, in all the different challenges that we have in society. So the mission hasn't changed, 
But what does change and what does need to flex are our methods to actually uh, reach and change those methods uh, to, to reach that, that mission. The one thing I would say uh, just about welcoming students onto the, the campus, um, I think that's been a real positive of our schools is that there is that community feel and students are feeling welcome regardless of whatever uh, different setting that they're coming from. If they're coming for the mission and they're uh, mission appropriate students, whatever that might look like for that individual school, uh, those those schools are, are are welcoming them with open arms and are making sure that they're able to uh, fit in really well and, and be able to have an impact on the community as well. All right, terrific. Well, I first, I'm gonna thank everybody, but first I promised uh, the people who run the Cato Sphere Summit that I would mention the Sphere Summit because there are probably a lot of educators watching this. Um, we run something called the Sphere Summit It'll be June 27th through July 1st and July 25th through July 29th. So two of these. Uh, it's the it's about teaching. It's called well the tagline is teaching civic culture together. These are uh, basically these terrific events where teachers, especially if you're in history or teaching social studies or something like that, you'll hear from lots of different speakers showing how we can discuss kind of hot button political issues and public policy issues civilly and and also sort of introduce teachers to all these different perspectives. Um, I'm pretty sure it's free. There's a little button there that says something about scholarships. But if you want to learn more, uh, go to www.cato.org, cato.org uh, backslash sphere, S-P-H-E-R-E, -E, and you can learn more about that. Since this was an education event, uh, I promised I would do that. And now I want to thank, of course, the panelists for joining us today. Uh, I think these are terrific insights uh, that give us a deeper look into how private schooling has done under COVID and it's, uh, what things look like for the future. Uh, and I want to thank all of you who have watched and sent questions and comments. Uh, and I hope you all have a good day. <laughs>